Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful glories of your Son, Jesus Christ, incline our heart to your testimonies. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love as we open your words of life. Nourish our hearts, feed our faith. In Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I just want to thank you for your prayers. You know, the, the work of ministry, the work of sermon preparation is a work that is corporate. We are all involved in this. We come to the Word of uh, God, and uh, when we come to this Word, we come to the raw ingredients. We come to verses and phrases and words and ideas. And so throughout the week, I'm looking at the raw ingredients of salt and pepper and greens and potatoes, which is the Word of God in the original language. And I look at all these ingredients and I say, well, what is it going to make? And we know that with certain ingredients, you can only make certain things. So the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning has an idea. But uh, when the dish is also made, you have to figure out how you're going to set the plate. How are you going to present the ideas that you are presenting? And this is a work that we do together. As you pray for myself, as you pray for Rod, as you pray for anyone else who stands behind this pulpit, you are praying that God's word would be expounded and that it would feed you and I as we come together to this wonderful dish. And so as we've been looking at the book of Philippians, God has already been giving us some ingredients to work with as we're going to get to our passage this morning. We are partners in the gospel. We have attitudes like Christ. Our mind ought to be changed. We embrace our disappointments as God's appointments. And he's been telling us to stir this. Let the, don't let the ingredients just sit there. Walk worthy. Savor Christ. Walk in humility. These are the ideas that we have been hearing together. And so as we come to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, I want to begin with an illustration that brings me back to my seminary days, which I thought were very recent, but I keep forgetting that time flies quickly. This was 2015, and I recently watched a documentary entitled Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead on Netflix. And this was because that week God put me on a week-long sabbatical, not by choice, but because of the heaviness of ministry and seminary, reading hundreds of pages each week, writing long papers, and doing a lot of ministry, my body shut down on me. And Monday morning, I woke up and I could not move. It was only until Thursday that I decided, let's go to the doctor because nothing has changed. And uh, we came to the doctor and they just said it was probably from stress or anxiety that your body just did this. Well, I knew that something needed to change. I needed to be healthier and not have the sedentary style of uh, ministry and pastoring. I knew I needed to jog, but how could I do so with my $20 sneakers that I bought from a Walmart in Mexico? I was convinced I needed something better. So I went to the store that recently opened up across the street, DSW, a store that a lot of you women love, and I was on a mission to get the best shoes that I could because I told myself this time it was going to be different. And so I put on various shoes and I walked around the store preparing for my amazing experience that would lie ahead. And after talking to an employee who finished Tough Mudder and $74.99 less in my bank account, I walked out the store. 
In great anticipation, I picked up some Puma shorts from Ross, downloaded one of the 8,000 fitness apps on the market, and decided I was going to challenge my sedentary lifestyle. I also set up a jogging partner whom you know very well. His name is Alexei Dolotov, who was my neighbor at the time, who was willing to wake me up at 5.15 in the morning um, <clears throat> at a time, ungodly time, that I probably wouldn't wake up at. And we were off. And I, proud, I was proud that I covered all the bases. I had the good shoes. I had the right clothes. I had accountability. Last but not least, I had the many sermons that I was ready to listen to while I would be jogging around the block. It all began well. The great feeling of energy bursts after a 15-minute jog, the freshness in the body, the clear thinking. I fought through times of going to sleep late, having to wake up in the morning knowing that Alexi was waiting for me. The fresh air of the morning, the, what I call the crisp air, which my wife calls cold air, um, I really enjoyed. Then came the first morning we missed a day, then a couple days, and then a week, but we were still determined. But a short few weeks later, the great endeavor, the new shoes, the jogging clothes seemed to fade, and sleep was just more comfortable. Getting up in the cold didn't cut it any longer. The results didn't seem to outweigh the cost. I think many of us have experienced this phenomenon in our life. We get to a point in our life where we want to do something different. We want to live healthier. It could be through the advertisements of your friends or a doctor's visit or the encouragement of the summer season coming soon. The gym membership opens up. Laws come into place. No Nutella, no eating after 6 p.m. Goals are set. Gear is bought. And you begin to do one of the most three popular ways of staying active in the U.S., which is walking, jogging, jogging, or the treadmill. And you say you're not going to be one of the 27% of Americans who are inactive. But after some time, just like myself, you find yourself becoming a statistic. You become one of the 50% of people who drop a fitness goal in the first six months. You see, working out is hard. It's not just buying the right clothes, shoes, accountability partner, gym memberships. You actually have to commit to a lifestyle that involves sacrifice, that involves giving up certain foods, that involves going to sleep early, that involves telling your body no when you just want to cuddle on that soft pillow. It's a lifestyle that you have to embrace and live by, but you will never get the results if you do not put in the work, and the work involves sacrifice. And so likewise, in our passage this morning, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that church unity and gospel growth do not simply occur from having right theology, being a part of a, a membership of a church or accountability. But you have to be disciplined. You have to commit to making it happen. And ultimately, you have to embrace a lifestyle where you are mission-minded and focused on the things that God is focused on. That Scripture teaches us that are important. You have to cut out certain things in your life like selfish ambition and embrace humility. And so this is what Paul is calling us and what ultimately God is calling us to do this morning. He has already, as we studied last week in verse 27, if you would look with me once again, Philippians 1.27, only out of the whole list, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So you live in line with the calling that God calls you to, and if we remember it comes with certain responsibilities that we have as believers. And now Paul is telling the Philippian church 
that just as Jesus Christ lived in total obedience to the Father, we too ought to walk in obedience. We too ought to shine forth the gospel and be spent for God's great purposes in our life. Now, as we look at our passage, we're in verse 12, and you probably remember that we finished in verse chapter 1 of verse 30 last week. Well, next week, because it's the resurrection, Rod is going to be preaching 2, 1 through 11 about the humility all the way to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And so today, I'll be referencing 2, 1 through 11, but our passage is going to be built off of that, so you will see that we'll come back to it quite a bit. And so working out is for the purpose of a healthy body, and Paul gives us two commands what the healthy church should be doing. If you look with me in verse 12, we see here, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. First command, work out your own salvation. That's the first command that we see here, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the second command we see in verse 14, do all things. That's a command, do all things without fear, uh, do all things without grumbling or questioning. So first we're going to look at working out for church unity and then working out for gospel growth. Now as we think about working out, there are many benefits that working out brings to the body, emotional health, physical health. But what Paul is saying here, there's something greater on the line when we work out spiritually. You see, God's greater purposes are fulfilled when we put in the work that God calls us to do. Ultimately, the fulfilling of God's purposes here on earth. And so our first point here is work out for, going to get there. Let me just go to the next slide. If you can run this PowerPoint, that'd be good, Matt. Seems like it's not working. Work out for church unity. Work out for church unity. And in verse 12, we find this little word, therefore, my beloved. Therefore. Paul always moves to practical living, and you don't need to look at the PowerPoint a lot. There's going to be not a lot on there, okay? There's going to be just two points for every main point, so you can look up here this morning. Um, therefore, is connecting something that, ha- that is coming before, and Paul always does this. He builds off theological truth and then calls us to a certain kind of lifestyle, and this is the reality of our life, that we cannot build our life based on simply do, 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 do. We build our life on first seeing the glories of Christ and being so inspired and in awe of what Christ has done that then when we look at the commands, we say with the Apostle John that they are easy to follow. This is what Paul is doing here. Practical doing apart from affection is dead orthodoxy. If we think of Isaiah 1, do you remember what uh, Isaiah is writing God is saying, your multitudes have sacrifices, I do not want them, because I just do not want the doing, I want you to love me. One author writes, true worship of Christ inspires our work. Singing the praises of Christ motivates us to build the community in Christ. And so the encouragement to press on is after this wonderful example of Christ's humility and His sacrifice. This is very true in our life. I remember going back to the days of a Resolved Conference in 2008 as Paul Washer was preaching about the glories of Christ from Colossians chapter 1. He was talking about the preeminence of Jesus Christ, how He is above all. 
And he preached for a whole one hour and 30 minutes to a bunch of college students, which a lot of people would say, that doesn't work nowadays. <laughs> well, what happened is after that sermon was done, we came back to our Airbnb that we were renting, and I just wanted to take my guitar and worship all night because of how glorious Jesus is. And so as Paul is showing us the glory of Christ, he is now drawing us to what is that life supposed to look like? What is the position that we have in Christ? What kind of practice in our life does it lead us to? And so he says these words, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Paul's a good coach. He knows how to encourage people. What Paul is doing, and if you have experience in your life, is the difference between you feeling that someone is putting you down versus somebody encouraging you. You guys already did this before. You're doing well. You're running well. Continue to do so as you have always obeyed. Obedience, the basic meaning of this word, is to listen or place oneself under what is heard. So submitting to what is heard. And this is why in the Old Testament, the word for hear, O Israel, is only one word. Obedience and hearing are one and the same. Because to hear, to truly hear, means that you will be, obey what is heard. Much more, always like in my presence, but also in my absence. Now, obeying in someone's presence is easy here. When Paul is obviously there, it's like the parent who's watching over the children. And when the parent says to clean up the room, the children are doing it. But what about when the parents give the children a to-do list and leave? Is the obedience happening? What happens when no one is over, looking over the shoulder to see if you're going to comply? Now, Paul is in prison, and he's saying they're continuing to obey, and he knows that they're doing well because Epaphroditus sent this letter. Now, much more is important. It's vital because... Paul is saying, I'm not there to help you now. I was there to help you, but now I'm in prison. So yes, you worked out your salvation before, but much more since I'm now absent, I can't be there with you like he was with the church at Ephesus for three years, helping them to mature, teaching them the foundational truths in Christ. He's saying now much more, like this is of vital importance. I am gone now. I'm not there to hold your hands. You need to take the step forward to mature and to grow up. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So here comes the workout. What's, what's Paul going to prescribe that they should do? Well, first let's look at what does that word here mean when he says work out your own salvation? What is working out? The, work, the word work out carries the meaning of working to full completion. So it's like working out a math problem in school. Or in Paul's day... It was used for working in a mine, getting all of the valuable things out of the mine, or working in a field so you get the greatest harvest possible. Take whatever steps are necessary to restore to health, integrity, and wholeness. This is what Paul is saying. And it is a present command. Paul is saying that this should be an ongoing habit in your life. Make sure that you continue to do this. This is not simply a goal, but a lifestyle, working out. I think this is the difference that we need to understand when we set goals in our life. Oftentimes, the goals are achieved, but they do not stand the test of time because they were not in conjunction with our lifestyle. 
You guys hear what I'm saying? What I am saying is that if you would want to be a, a, a healthier person, then you must take a garbage bag and open your pantry and start throwing things away because you know you're not going to come back to that any longer. Because when you embrace a new lifestyle, there's no way you're going down the aisle and picking up the same items. You're not going to be a person who is snoozing in at 10 a.m. on a Saturday because you're going to be a person who's waking up at 7 and taking that morning jog. This is a lifestyle that you're embracing because you're not going back to the old lifestyle. And when Paul is saying work out your salvation, he's saying you are embracing this lifestyle of sanctification. You are living as a new creation in Christ and you are being obedient to the commands that God has called you to. This is the difference between a goal and a lifestyle. And when he says work out your salvation, what he's saying is work out your progressive sanctification. Be more like Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, he has called us to be conformed to the image of his Son. Well, guess who Paul is calling them to look up to at this moment? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only my presence, much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What are they called to be working out? What, are, what is the salvation? Well, the previous text speaks about Jesus Christ. Look with me in verse 5. Paul calls them also a command he gives them in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he tells them how Christ lived. Zero entitlement, sacrifice, even to the point of death and death on the cross. In chapter 2, a little bit earlier, he calls them in verse 2 to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, do nothing from rivalry, conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. This is the salvation, the ongoing sanctification that Paul is calling them to, the progressive sanctification, becoming and experiencing all the aspects and the blessings of the Christian walk. We're not talking about salvation by works here because he is writing to believers. Paul is saying that salvation already came from God in 128. What Paul is talking about here is that the Philippians apply their sanctification, their salvation, their walk with God to the problems of selfish ambition, strife, and egocentric attitudes that were dividing the church. Paul is saying, work that out. Paul is saying, work on that. And how do you work on that? By exercising humility like Christ did who, although he was in a form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself. Therefore, as you have already obeyed, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, now work out that humility in your life. Work out all of the aspects and the blessings of salvation. Now, a couple more things to note about the word work out. We notice that there is no passiveness in working out. You got to get up. You got to put on the shoes. You got to actively participate in this. And I was reading this book called Atomic Habits. In the book, they talked about how you can build habits in your life. And they said, well, the first thing you do if you want to start jogging is you wake up, you go downstairs, um, and you put on your shoes, you walk out the door, and you walk back inside, take off your shoes, and go back. And he says, you do that for about a week, and you build a habit of simply just putting on your shoes. 
Because if it's too big of a thing you want to do, it's sometimes hard to swallow. And the next thing you do is you go walk out, you put on your jogging shoes, you walk out the door, and you literally walk to the, to the sidewalk or to the edge of where, you know, the jogging place starts, and then you come back inside and you do that for another week. And then finally, on the third week, you actually put on your jogging shoes, walk out, get to the sidewalk, and start doing a jog, but only go for five minutes. And the idea here is that you're actively doing this. You're planning for it. You're the one who is a part of this. And it is here, a second note that I want to, I want to highlight, is that this is a corporate matter. That this is something that the whole church does. When he says to work out, there's an implied, you all, all of you inside of the church, all of you work out your salvation. Because sanctification is a community project. What was being the hindrance here was this unity of the believers. So then that means that all of the believers need to be working towards that unity. If you, re- if you remember, last week we studied 127, where Paul reminds them, stand firm in one spirit. They all needed to stand firm. In chapter 2, he says to complete his joy by being like-minded. They all needed to do that. And later in verse 14, he says they need to do all things without grumbling. Why? So they can be light. So everybody is a part in this. It's not one individual person, but it is the church working as a whole that produces the unity and the harmony. I think about just going back to the illustration. The habits in our life, the lifestyle that we embrace, are always best done in community. And what Paul is saying, if you're going to be more like Christ, it happens here in the church. The question becomes, how are you supposed to do this? And here's where we get something now on the PowerPoints, reverence in God's presence. It begins with reverence in God's presence. Work out your own salvation, and here is the how of us working out. Number one, with fear and trembling. We're to conduct our lives in seriousness and reverence that is due Him. After all, it's God who is working in them. We, we go back to the Old Testament. This kind of language indicates awe in God's presence. As we read Exodus, or the fear of the Jewish people, because God's presence was with them. Now, why was there fear? Why was there awe? Because a holy God was in their presence. In our previous section, here in Philippians 2, we see that in verse 9, therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Who's this one? The one that we just sang about. The one who is worthy of Revelation 5 to open the scroll and the seals. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, this is a safeguard for us in our life. When God calls us to do the work, He reminds us in whose presence we are working out our salvation. God reminds us that we ought not to take our responsibility lightly because there is a holy and righteous God whom we serve. 
The more self-confident we are in our own conduct, the less dependent we will be on God and the less likely we allow God to work through us. And so what exactly does fear and trembling mean? Is it simply fear or just simple respect? Well, every once in a while, especially in the last few months, we have have experienced a lot of storms. And a lot of storms and a lot of winds means a lot of down power lines. If you ever had a PG&E worker work outside of your home on a power line, I want to ask you, are they flippantly doing the work or are they fearfully doing the work, knowing how much voltage is going through those wires? You see, this fear is not a debilitating fear, but it's a fear that drives you to, to, to pay the utmost attention to what you are doing. It is a fear that causes you to be attentive to the working out of your salvation. It causes you to really be attentive to how you treat your spouse or your children. It causes you to be attentive of how you treat people in the church when you rub shoulders or when you engage in sometimes conflict within the church or you have differences with other people. How are you going to engage? Are you going to be flippant and not care how your words and your lifestyle affects the people in the congregation? Or are you going to be fearful knowing that you are in the presence of a holy God? This is an attitude of humility. When we see Christ's glory, our only reaction is that of Isaiah 6. Lord, I am a man of sinful lips and I dwell among a people of a sinful heart. See, the fear of the Lord is the best way to dispel the attitude of selfish ambition or vain conceits that we saw here at the beginning of chapter 2. Do nothing, in verse 3, from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Don't only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And as you are working out that in your life, number one, do it with fear and trembling. Number two, what we see here, the second way we are to do this, is seeing the reality of God's purpose. The reality of God's purpose. Now, the principle that Paul lays down is this. God must work in us before God is going to work through us. When we get to chat verses 14 and 15 and 16, we see that Paul is saying, you as the church are lights that shine in this crooked and perverse generation. So I want to use you as a church. But before I'm going to use you as a church, I need to work in you. And here we see in verse 13, an encouragement and also an explanation for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Apart from God working in us, we cannot accomplish anything of lasting value. And so Paul is saying in verse 12, you need to work something out, but what are we working out? Something that God has already worked in us and what he has worked in us already is salvation. Now, this idea of God working, we've already seen in the book of Philippians. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 6, I want to read this verse with you. Paul says in 1, 6, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. 
Do you recall, why does Paul decide to use, to use the description of God as he who began a good work? And now look at verse 13, we see the same idea. For it is God who works in you. Paul is describing God as a working God, as an active God in the life of his church, as a God who accomplished salvation but now is not distant from his people, but it is extremely near and Christ is the head of the church, giving the life to the body. God is the one who took initiative and now he's going to continue working in you. The salvation that comes from God. And after all, we as God's people and the Philippians are God's showcase. The way they handle their salvation reflected the God who gave that salvation. Ephesians 3, just want to highlight this verse. Paul talks about the church, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God is the one who is working. God is the working God in our life, in your life, in the midst of your lulls, and at the time of your mountaintops, the same God is working the one who parted the seas, the one who calmed the storms, the one who has life in himself and gives life to us, who holds everything by the word of his power. This God is working in your life and my life. Isn't that encouraging? I need not worry. I need not fret. If I have enough ability or if I have enough sufficiency in myself because I don't, it comes from the God who gives it to me because he lives within me. And apart from his working I would be powerless. And we're reminded of this powerlessness often. We're reminded how powerless we are when it comes to parenting and inputting three, four, five years in a child's life. And you wonder, well, if I only said it a thousand times, maybe they would get it. But it's the character, the heart of the child that is sinful that God needs to work on. We're reminded of our powerlessness through the time of our spousal conflict. The character differences, polar opposites, the batteries that have the positive and the negative charge, how God has created it. And as many couples that I've counseled and married, they're always radically different. And that's how God has created it to be. But you are reminded that it is on your knees and in the prayer closet that change happens. We're reminded how desperate we really are apart from Christ. He is working in you all, in all of you individually and, and also in all of you corporately as a church to fix this disunity. Now, what are the two things that he is working? To will, number one, and also to work for his good pleasure. So the idea first one here is to will, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The desire that we even have comes from the Lord. He works in us as believers to generate actual good choices. Have you experienced that in your life when you are going through a tough situation and you are ready to react in the flesh and God steps in and helps you by His Spirit to react positively, to show compassion where there needs to be compassion, to show forgiveness where there needs to be forgiveness, to humble yourself and to bite your tongue so that the flame doesn't continue to burn greatly? 
You see, this is the one who is willing in your life. He's the one who's generating the actual good choices. The desire comes from the Lord. And where did the desire come from? The desire comes from a changed mind, Philippians 2.5, having the mind of Christ, and this mind being fed by the truth of God's Word to then make the right choices. So God is willing, and God is also now working for His good pleasure. For His good pleasure to work, it means He's active in our life, and for His good pleasure means it is for His glory. Once again, God is the greater actor in our life. And the things that He is doing in our life are done to glorify Him. This one writer gives us an analogy to help us understand what it looks like that God is working in and we are working out. Think of a tree, he says. The tree works in. What's worked in is the air, the light, the heat, the rain, and the dew. That's what's worked into it, the things that are surrounding the tree. What does the tree work out? Wood, leaves, and fragrant blossoms. God works in His truth, His spirit, and His grace, and we work out in love, joy, humility, and compassion. Ultimately, what this ver- these verses are teaching us is that God is enabling us to do everything that He has called us to do. We're never hopeless. We're never powerless. We're never out of place of desperation because He provides us His grace. 100% us, 100% God. And this is the primary difference between Christianity and other religions of the world. Because a religion is an attempt to work something in rather than let God work something in. Religion is saying you need to do, 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 do to accomplish salvation. God is saying I've already accomplished salvation on your behalf. I've worked it in. Now live like I've called you to live as a believer. So I want to ask you a few questions before we move on to our next verses. Do you know why God has placed you in a church and family and friendships that include faulty people and include issues? Because God is putting you in what I would call the gym of life and giving you the reps that you need to change you, to transform you and make you more like Christ. So that you work out your salvation showing everyone your allegiance to Christ and living out your responsibility as a believer. So are you seeking unity, resisting selfishness, remembering others, looking to Christ as the role model who's already done this and saying, I want to follow in the steps of my Savior. I want to be more like Him. And doing this with this example of Christ. You know, Mark Twain He wrote this. He said, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. (laughs) And sometimes we read the Gospels and we read the New Testament and epistles and we're like, Jesus, I can't do this. Like, here is the standard. Christ, you're the role model. It's all the way up here. And as I look at my life, it's, you know, I'm barely making it. And sometimes we, we give up. Sometimes we say it's too much. God is reminding us He's working in us and He's working through us. And let's not even take Jesus as the example. There are people in this congregation that you might be looking at and you're wondering, man, they sure make me, they sure make me look a little worse than I thought I was. 
Just after a few conversations, after living life, you begin to see how much more you need to grow. Life in the Christian life, it's not a lot of ups and downs. It's rather the processes of in and out. God is working in. We are working out. And so first we saw that we need to work out for church unity by having reverence in His presence, by understanding the reality of His purpose. But we also work out for gospel growth. Gospel growth, and this is verses 14 to 18. Because Christ-likeness is not only edifying the church family, but the Christ-likeness leads to evangelizing the lost. So we work out for gospel growth. An idea of gospel growth that I get from this passage is here in verse 15, where Paul is saying that you are children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So what Paul is reminding them is that they are missionally living, that they are on Via Ignatia, the road that comes across the city of Philippi, dividing it in the north and the southern parts, where a lot of people would be going through and where the church would have a great impact. And if they do not have the unity that God is calling them to have, they're not going to be able to shine that light as brightly as they would desire. Now, I want to take you on a lesson in church history and bring you to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see that God chooses one man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And he says he's going to be a blessing, and that blessing is going to be to all peoples. And we see that the story continues in Exodus chapter 1, where the people of Israel are multiplying. And you would think the story would end after the famine and Joseph, but God, he provides for his people, and ultimately gets to the place where God calls his people his people in the middle of the book of Exodus. And why does God choose Israel? God chooses Israel to be a light to the nations. He gives them the law, the civil, the ceremonial laws, and the people around them are supposed to look to Israel and say, how great is your God? What do we learn about Israel? They grumble, they complain, they turn to idols. And they're not the people that God would want them to be. They're not shining forth the lights like they should. They're complaining about manna cake and manna waffles and banana bread as they're in the wilderness. And ultimately, centuries pass, time passes, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 49 that there's going to come a new Israel. And Isaiah writes this of him, where God is saying, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Who is this servant that we read in the book of Isaiah? The servant is Christ. But it's too light a thing that he would just be for the people of Israel. I'm going to raise him up so he's a light to the nations, the Gentiles, all of us in this room this morning. Christ is going to be the light. And now, Peter is saying in 1 Peter, you are a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood like Israel was, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're on a mission. Proclaim the excellencies of Christ. 
Paul reminds us that the things that are written in the Old Testament happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. And so like Israel in the wilderness, the Christians in Philippi are suffering. There is certain disunity. And Paul is saying that the suffering is granted for Christ to change them, to transform them so that they would be as light in a crooked and perverse generation. And so how are they going to do this? Well, here we see in verse 14, do all things. When we talk about working out, we can talk about it with doing things with joy or doing things with grumbling. That's how we approach life. Either we joyfully say yes, like Ezra always tells me, yes, Dad, of course I'm going to take out the garbage. Of course I'm going to clean my closet and put away the toys. What else would you like me to do? You want me to go to Trader Joe's and buy you some groceries as well? No. You see, either with joy we approach life or with grumbling. And oftentimes, when we speak to our children, there is the, I guess I'll do it, eye roll. There's the quick, sure, or no, how about you do it? Or it actually was Catalea who made the mess. <laughs> all things includes all things. It is not Paul saying do some things, do most things, do only things that are easy, only do the things that work for you. He says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Every dimension of our life. Now, why would there be grumbling or disputing in a family? Why would there be grumbling or disputing at the church of Philippi? Well, I did it last time. That's not fair. It wasn't my mess. Grumbling refers to whispering complaints, talking in secret against someone, making negative comments about others behind their back. And complaining in this context means quarreling and debating. Ways that are divisive and things that raise doubts. And so first, Paul is calling them to cease negative speech. To cease negative speech. Do all things, and here's how you're going to do all things, without grumbling or questioning. If we focus too much on each other, going back to the beginning of chapter 2 of Philippians, you're going to be looking at your own interests, your selfish ambitions, and you're going to be conceited as you look to the rep, those around you. It is very interesting, Galatians 5, I just want to highlight this verse, how this happens, how complaining and grumbling happens. In chapter 5 of Galatians, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Now, why, why is Paul saying these words, don't provoke or don't envy? Well, he just was saying about the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And he gave the parallel of walking in the flesh or walking in the Spirit. Well, what happens when people start walking in the Spirit? If we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step, let's not become conceited. How can you become conceited? How can you grumble or complain? Well, you become conceited when you're looking at someone else's Christian walk and you're like, man, I really want that kind of walk. Man, I would, I would love to have what they have. Man, it seems like their life is so easy. How do they have this kind of faith? They are, they're, sorry, that would be envying one another. They're envying what someone else has. Or if you're really walking in the Spirit, you say, well, you know, I woke up today at 4.30, read my Bible. I actually did a mini fast as well. And I helped, you know, a few people on my street this week to help clean up their yards. And that is conceited. 
So don't be conceited on the one hand, seeing how spiritual you really are, and don't be envious saying, how can you, I want what someone else has? Because those two things, as you're looking inward and only at the people around you, is going to cause you to grumble or question. But Paul's saying, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Why? That you may be blameless. So Paul is applying this to all kinds of suffering. He is <clears throat> challenging them to stop with the attitudes and words that tear apart the social fabric of the community. They were to be pure and blameless. There's really no greater joy robber than grumbling and complaining. Now, what should be our motivation for obedience? Because that is the question. What is at stake when we are called to do all things to obey, to work out? Do all things without grumbling and complaining, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God in a crooked and twisted generation. Not only are you going to limit God's purposes by not being obedient, but a second thing is going to happen. You're not going to be as impactful in your witness to those who are around you. Blameless, you are blameless, you are innocent, you're children of God without blemish. You see, all of these terms speak about the moral distinctiveness of Christians. Moral distinctiveness. It's not always the, the major things we're talking about, but simply how we walk, how we talk, if we grumble or we dispute. How we live is, is important because we're living in this crooked, the word for crooked literally is scoliosis, and twisted generation. And so the ministry of the church really is to provide a straight model, to provide clear view of what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. You see, not everyone's going to come to church on a Sunday at 11. Not everyone's going to go to a chapel. Not everyone's going to walk into any other place of faith. But people that are your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates, you are Christ to them. You are the reflection, the role. You are imitating Christ as a role model, and they are seeing your joy. They are seeing your faithfulness. They are seeing Christ's likeness in you. There's one writer who said that the most important weapon against the enemy is not a stirring sermon or a powerful book. It is the consistent life of believers. I'll let that sink in. We can have powerful sermons here. We can, have, we can read powerful books, but what is all that truth unless it is we work out our salvation and go to the places where we live and be the weapon against the enemy? We are shining because it is Christ who is shining through us. Now, not only do we cease negative speech, but we cleave to the Word. We cleave to the Word. How are we supposed to do this? Well, it's because we have God's Word. Here we have verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud. Holding fast. You're holding fast to it. You're holding near to it. And it's the word of life. It's the word that gives life. And you are holding out. You're holding fast to this word so that this word changes your life so that you're going to be light. He who would shine as a light must burn. No candle can give light without the wax being consumed. If we're going to shine for Christ, 
We must give of ourselves. We must give of ourselves. And this is what Paul is reminding them as he is getting to the end. He's saying, I did not run or labor in vain. I'm poured out as a drink offering. I'm being consumed, but I'm giving of myself, and this is how I'm going to be able to shine to Christ, for Christ. And so we cease negative speech. We cleave to the Word. That is what's going to give us the strength to press on and to do all of the things that God is calling us to do. And lastly, we, we commit to the long run. We commit to the long run. As Paul is finishing off this section, he's reminding himself, reminding the believers at Philippi how he is the one who is being poured out as a drink offering. And the idea here is in the Old Testament and Greco-Roman culture, it was like the pouring out of a wine either onto the ground or an altar along with an animal or grain sacrifice. It was, it was this illustration that you are being, is your life is being poured out in God's service. And so Paul is saying, here I am, and I'm being poured out into your service, Philippians, but also the greater purposes of God. And so, likewise, also you should be glad and rejoice with me. Be glad and rejoice with me what God is doing in this world. Be glad and rejoice with me that you as the church are pure and blameless and can be light. Be glad and rejoice with me that God is working to will and to work His good pleasure. Be glad and rejoice with me that Christ left you the example to follow. And it's not even so much as Christ left us an example, but Christ who lives in us. And so Paul once again redefines what success looks for him. In verse 17, even if the same words that he uses in chapter 1 when he says, even my chains. He's helping them to have a different perspective about circumstances, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering. And so success does not require Paul's comfort or his continued existence. Success does not require the Philippians' comfort or freedom from pain. Success comes by allowing God to accomplish His purposes through our life. And this is the idea that Paul wants to leave them with here. This is what true success looks like. So I want to ask you, as we've looked at this lengthier passage this morning, are there areas in your life where you need to reassess how you do things? Do you do all things without grumbling or disputing slash complaining? Are you willing to serve in the places that God has put you in, whether that is here at Gateway Community Church? Are you willing to serve in your family units, being a family team that's on a mission? Are you willing to serve well in the places of your work? Do you understand that the greater purpose of your purity is to shine forth the gospel of Christ? And are you rejoicing? Are you rejoicing and glad that you're being spent for God's purposes? Are you saying, amen, Lord, I'm grateful that I didn't sleep well, and here I am going to give five hours of my day to serve somebody else? Are you grateful saying, my calendar is filled up and I am tired and exhausted, but I'm being used by God to serve people in my church? Are you grateful that once again somebody called you because you are dependable and faithful and asked you to help them in one or another area or asked you for counsel? Are you rejoicing and glad that you're being spent for God's purposes? And if yes, that means you're working out your salvation with fear 
and trembling. And so in conclusion, this morning, we looked at the imperatives of work out and do all things. And both of these commands are similar to the idea of working out physically. And I'm calling us to exercise to be a healthy church. And we work out for church unity so that all that we're doing first makes an impact here. And it changes lives here, that helps people grow here, that it unifies the church and brings harmony here. And then ultimately working out for gospel growth. I want to close with the words from the song, Oh Great God, because I feel like the lyrics are so fitting with this passage. And the song, Oh Great God, really is a song of, it's a, it's a song that's a prayer. It's a prayer to God as we sing the song. I know that you know the lyrics. Oh great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Conquer, conquer all selfishness. Conquer all rivalry and conceit. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war as he is making us holy. Help me now to live a life. This is where verse 13 comes in of God who's working in us. That's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. And ultimately, you are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. May that be the prayer and the song of our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words of life. Oh, how sweet are these words as you remind us of who you are. The God who is working, the God who is faithful. Our Father who comes near us. Our Father who strengthens us, who comforts us in our weaknesses. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate example of humility, sacrifice, servitude. We look to Christ. Who else do we look to? We look to your word, and your word is all about your son, Jesus Christ, for he himself said that beginning from Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, he expounded the scriptures concerning himself. Your word is about your son. Jesus, you live within us. It is no longer we who live, but you who live in us, and you're accomplishing your work. And you called us this morning to, to work out, to do our part, to be responsible for that which you have called us to do, to not be lazy, to not be lethargic, but to take seriously the calling that you have upon our life. For we are not simply bystanders, bystanders. we're not simply coasting in this world waiting for you to come back. We are soldiers in your army. We're ambassadors for your kingdom. And help us to live like that. We depend on you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.